Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. This week's podcast comes from our polar issue from autumn 2018. The title is Scribes in Ice and Darkness, and is read here by the author Fergus Fleming. In October 1819, Lieutenant Edward William Parry anchored HMS Heckler and HMS Griper off Melville Island and battened down for the first Arctic overwintering in the history of the Royal Navy. His ultimate goal was the conquest of the Northwest Passage, through which he had already penetrated further than any previous expedition. But his immediate concerns were twofold, how to keep his crews free from scurvy and how to prevent them from coming to despair during the dark winter months. He solved the first by growing watercress on hot pipes, fed by the heckler's galley. The second he addressed with a regular programme of theatricals and, importantly, the world's first polar newspaper. In his proposal for what would become the North Georgia Gazette and Winter Chronicle, Parry announced that its editor, Captain Edward Sabine, FRS, an army officer attached to the expedition for his scientific prowess, would be wholly dependent on the gentlemen of the expedition for support of the paper. Original contributions on any subject will be acceptable. The sportsman and the essayist, the philosopher and the wit, the poet and the plain matter-of-fact man will each find their respective places. Strict editorial impartiality would prevail. Articles were to be penned anonymously, and nothing was to be written that might cause offence in their enclosed community. The first issue was scheduled for Monday 1st November 1819, and submissions were to be posted in a locked box nailed to the heckler's capstan, no later than the evening of the Thursday before. Articles flowed in under pseudonyms such as Frosticus, Snip Quill Drive, Sir Pitiful Punster, and Quintilian Querulous. So enthusiastic were they that as Parry, Philocomus, wrote in the first issue, I have now much pleasure in assuring you that in the language of our London journals, they have produced a great sensation in the public mind. He recorded, only half in jest, that the green baize of their mess table was covered with quill shavings. Nine people had asked for their penknives to be sharpened, ink was being thawed over lamps, and officers had already begun raiding the tin boxes of spare paper they kept in the hold. Every Monday thereafter, the North Georgia Gazette became a feature of shipboard life. The editorial routine was straightforward. Handwritten contributions were posted in the box, Sabine gave them a brief scan for infelicities. Then two subordinates made a fair copy for distribution. Parry, meanwhile, made a further copy for posterity. The contents were exemplary in their adherence to Parry's guidelines and were confined mainly to jokes, 
poems, cod advertisements, thinly disguised gossip, and rather feeble news items, such as a dog consorting with wolves, which had been seen in the vicinity. Occasionally, there was real news, like Sabine's observatory burning down, and correspondence as to whether the minus 50.5 degrees Fahrenheit of 13th January 1820 was the lowest on record. And never far distant was the reason they were there, for the completion of the Northwest Passage would bring not only lasting fame, but a fabulous reward from the Board of Longitude. As a poem in issue 8, 20th December 1819, concluded, Fired with fresh ardour and with bold intent, Our minds shall like our prows be westward bent, Until Pacific's waves pour forth sweet sounds, Chiming to us like twenty thousand pounds. Now and then the tattle became too pointed. On 10th January 1820, one officer proposed a non-contributor's post, or opposition journal, which would concentrate solely on unpleasant comments and, if possible, add to them. But on the whole, the North Georgia Gazette was hugely popular and, above all, served its purpose in keeping both crews entertained for almost a hundred sunless days. As Parry wrote in the final issue on 20 March 1820, it will, perhaps, be objected by some of your more serious readers that the time thus spent might have been better employed. To which I may reply that it might also have been worse employed, or even not employed at all. The expedition returned that year, having failed to complete the Northwest Passage. But as Parry had anticipated, posterity was upon them. The North Georgia Gazette and Winter Chronicle was published the following year by John Murray. Printed by William Clowes, it was a slim volume, comprising 144 numbered pages, bound quarto in light green boards, with a black and white label affixed to the spine. Sabine opened with an apology. The editor of the following sheets feels it incumbent on him to state that at the time they were composed, not the remotest idea was entertained of their fulfilling any other purpose than that of relieving the tedium of an Arctic winter, and perhaps of afterwards affording amusement to a few private friends at home. That it had been published, he went on, was due to an unprecedented and quite unexpected public interest in the voyage. Sabine was too modest. Not only was the expedition showered with money and honours, but it caused a sensation whose tremors spread beyond the British Isles. Could the fabled seaway to the Orient be within reach? Such was its impact that Caspar David Friedrich was inspired to paint one of his most startling compositions, Das Eismeer, the Sea of Ice. Forebodingly, it concentrated not on the reality of Paris' situation, the two ships their decks canopied with canvas, and their hulls banked with snow, made an arresting enough sight, as depicted in Paris' journal, but instead showed HMS Griper crushed by sheets of ice. More dispiriting still, its alternate name was the Gescheiterte Hoffnung, the Wreck of Hope. Although Parry led subsequent voyages to the Arctic, he never produced a similar newspaper. 
It seems that even such a mild-mannered production had caused offence in the claustrophobic atmosphere of an overwintering. Instead, he instituted literacy classes for the crews. Nevertheless, his concept and its guiding editorial principles set a standard that would be followed by all others to come. In 1845, Sir John Franklin commanded an expedition comprising HMS Terror and HMS Erebus, which, it was expected confidently, would finish the task Parry had started. Instead, as envisaged by Friedrich, it vanished in the ice with the loss of both ships and all 134 men aboard. In the early 1850s, when Britain launched a flotilla of vessels to the Northwest Passage in a belated attempt to rescue survivors, the Admiralty took the unusual step of equipping its ships with presses, intended for the purpose of printing notices to advertise each ship's whereabouts and give positions of supply depots. These slips of paper, sometimes also silk, were attached in their hundreds to balloons, with fuses timed to release them at intervals as they drifted over the tundra. The messages had little effect. Unknown to the rescuers, Franklin's men had perished several years before. But the presses were put to good ancillary use, producing theatrical bills and a variety of ephemera. Newspapers, meanwhile, abounded. HMS Resolute issued the Illustrated Arctic News, HMS Assistance, the Aurora Borealis, HMS North Star, the Queen's Illuminated Magazine and North Cornwall Gazette, and HMS Plover, the Weekly Guy. In addition, there were short-lived squibs such as the Gleaner, Minivillins, and the Arctic Charivari. All these papers were handwritten with the exception of the Weekly Guy, which was printed. Their content differed little, in essence, from that of the North Georgia Gazette, save for one important difference. Whereas Paris newspaper had been written solely by officers, those of the Victorian age included contributions from ordinary seamen. As Dr. James Donnett, editor of the Aurora Borealis, wrote, the popular opinion seems to be that the literary attainments of British sailors seldom exceed the acquisition of some boisterous song and that only the very erudite amongst them can succeed in scrawling a letter to their friends at home. In the Aurora Borealis, however, we find articles written by veteran tars, whose home since boyhood has been upon the sea, that would not disgrace the pages of some of our magazines. These men, with frames of iron, with a courage and a stern endurance that nothing can subdue, show themselves possessed of a delicacy of imagination and a power of perception that one has great difficulty in reconciling with the honest roughness of their appearance. Some years ago, an officer, high in command, gave it as his opinion that men entirely uneducated made the best soldiers and sailors. Here, however, we find that the men from before the mast who contributed to Aurora Borealis are amongst the most exemplary in Her Majesty's service. He was no less complimentary about their printing skills. There were no printers in the squadron, but some of the officers soon learned the art, and besides balloon papers, playbills and announcements of fancy dress balls were regularly sent to press. 
Several of the men, too, became adepts in the art of printing and set up in type songs and other trifles, chiefly of their own composition. So great a passion, indeed, did printing become amongst them that when at length their stock of paper was run out, they imprinted on chamois leather, on shirts, and in one instance on a blanket. The entire apparatus of overwintering had become more sophisticated. Four hours each day were devoted to outdoor activities and exercise, skating, football and shooting being the most popular pastimes. Finger posts were erected for the benefits of travellers who became lost, and houses built of snow dotted the landscape should they need shelter if caught in a blizzard. Not only were there theatricals, but aboard the assistance, at least, there were painted backdrops and the curtain proscenium was flanked by ice sculptures of the Prince of Wales and the Princess Royal. Unlike Paris Voyage, when several performers suffered frostbite, despite the stage being laced with heated cannonballs. Reading rooms, Donnet went on, were established on the lower deck of each ship, as were also schools on the Lancasterian system. Here the ship's companies assembled, and while some read, others formed themselves into classes under the direction of teachers. A plentiful library having been supplied by the Admiralty, they studied navigation, steam, seamanship, arithmetic, modern languages and music. Officers as well as seamen filled the classroom. These scholastic pursuits were merely an interlude before the serious business began. As the ship's man-hauled sledge parties fanned out in search of Franklin, they endured privations hitherto unknown. Sometimes they raised sails and kites to speed their progress, but for the most part they hauled. The assistance parties alone spent four months in the wilderness, during which they trudged 800 miles. They were lucky. Some teams travelled so far that men died in harness. By the time they finished, they had covered vast tracts of the unknown and had mapped the northwest passage to within an inch of its life. Yet for all their tribulations, they failed to find Franklin. It would be left to the privately funded efforts of John Ray, in 1854, and Francis Leopold McClintock in 1859, to find definitive traces of his fate. His journals, however, have yet to be found, and even today his voyage remains one of the enduring mysteries of polar exploration. Franklin's would-be rescuers appreciated from the start that their newspapers might be worthy of publication. James Donnett condensed the Aurora Borealis into a volume called Arctic Miscellanies, which was published by Coburn & Co. in 1852. A facsimile of the illustrated Arctic News, meanwhile, was published in folio form by Ackerman in the same year, containing five issues, produced on 31st of October, 30th of November, 31st of December 1850, the 31st of January, and the 14th of March 1851. Its illustrations and colour plates were supplied by George MacDougall, Master of the Resolute, and the handwritten copperplate manuscript was edited by Lieutenant Sherard Osborne. A few articles have been omitted, Osborne wrote in the preface, for fear the bad taste of a longshore public might lead them to object on the score of raciness. 
For this we apologise to our gallant contributors. And we now, in the spirit of our motto, commit the illustrated Arctic news safely and fearlessly to the British public. The print run appears to have been small, which Osborne perhaps envisaged when he advised titans of the publishing industry not to feel threatened. Unless old England be overtaken by a night of three months' duration, it is not our intention to appear again in the editorial line. The Admiralty's last stab at the Arctic came with the Nares expedition of 1875-6. Two ships, HMS Alert and HMS Discovery, pushed to the northern reaches of Greenland, from where man-hauled sledge parties were sent in search of the North Pole. They traversed hundreds of miles of icy rubble before admitting defeat. The expedition was brought down by scurvy and retreated while it still could. Both ships may have had presses and playbills were certainly printed aboard one or other of them, but the only indications of a newspaper are diary references to a fortnightly discovery news edited by the naturalist Henry Chichester Clark. The first issue appeared on the 5th of November, 1875. Paper out at last, badly printed and badly edited. However, better luck next time. I've had enough to do to get it out anyhow. Half holiday for burning of Guy Fawkes, for a full account of which see second issue of Discovery News. The second issue was printed on the 19th of December, but no copies appear to exist of either these or any subsequent issues. Thereafter, the Admiralty wiped its hands of polar discovery and left the matter to individuals, of whom, under the faintly malign hand of Sir Clements Markham, veteran of the Franklin Search and President of the Royal Geographical Society, there were volunteers aplenty. Markham's favourite was a torpedo officer named Commander Robert Falcon Scott, who in 1901 led the British Antarctic Expedition to find the South Pole. Sponsored jointly by the Royal Geographical Society and the Royal Society, it comprised 50 men aboard a single vessel, the Discovery, and lacked the governmental funding of an admiralty project. Nevertheless, the voyage was productive from a scientific viewpoint, and a march by Scott, his friend Dr Edward Wilson, and an officer from the Merchant Marine named Ernest Shackleton, took them within 530 miles of the Pole. Importantly, from a shipboard perspective, the expedition also gave birth to the South Polar Times, widely regarded as the acme of polar journalism. Scott's was by no means the only voyage to Antarctica. There had been Belgium's Belgica of 1897-99, Britain's Southern Cross of 1898-1900, and simultaneously Sweden's Antarctic, and Germany's Gauss of 1901-03, as well as Scotland's subsequent Scotia expedition of 1902-04. On none of these expeditions had there been a newspaper, save perhaps on the Gauss, where a selection of amateur poetry and prose was produced in handwritten form as the Antarctische Intelligenzblatt. The lack was felt particularly by Dr J. Gunnar Andersen of the Antarctic, who wrote during one winter confinement that their only reading matter was supplied by the labels on tins of boiled beef and Nestlé's condensed milk. Chat, jokes and tales were rare in a desert of intellectual nothingness and we ourselves marked with astonishment 
how our thoughts produced nothing but a strange and wretched assortment of the most commonplace reminiscences. The South Polar Times was designed to counter precisely such ennui. According to one crew member, Lieutenant Albert Armitage, it was to be the most amusing, instructive, up-to-date journal with the widest circulation of any periodical within the Antarctic Circle. It was to combine all the best qualities of all the penny and halfpenny London dailies, together with those of the superior comic papers, as well as of the fourpenny halfpenny and half-crown monthly magazines. In short, it would be something of super-excellence. A meeting was held in the wardroom to decide its name, which done, they elected Wilson its principal artist, and Shackleton its editor. Wilson was an accomplished watercolorist, while Shackleton was a man of proven literary bent. During the Boer War, while ferrying troops to Cape Town aboard Tintagel Castle, he had co-authored an illustrated record of the voyage titled OHMS. The South Polar Times came out monthly, and contributions were initially placed in a postbox outside Shackleton's cabin, from where he could be heard typing furiously on the ship's sole typewriter. So many people sought his advice, however, that he retreated to an editorial bunker in the Discovery's bowels. On 7th April, during a blizzard, Wilson recorded in his diary, Spent the whole morning and afternoon arranging the editor's office in one of the holds. We built up, Shackle and I, the whole of the cases, leaving a small passage and a small room at one end, where we arranged cases for seats and a table for Shackleton's typewriter. The place is most comfortable, not cold or stuffy, and lit by candle lamps. There are cases of chocolate and raisins there, which we keep an eye on to see that they don't get spoiled by the damp, and Shackle has fixed a rope to the door, which enables him to open or shut from the other end of the hold, according to whether he wants his visitor to remain outside or to come in. It's a select office, and strangers with no business are not admitted as a rule. The first issue came out on 22nd of April, 1902, typed professionally by Chief Steward C.F. Ford, with gaps left for Wilson's watercolours, and was bound in book form by Lieutenant Michael Barn. As per Parry's strictures, contributions were anonymous. Though most people knew Shackleton was Nemo, and Barn Fitzclarence, in fact Nemo would have been identifiable if only for his style. The Tasmanian physicist Louis Bernacci recorded that Shackleton showed an especial aptitude for Kipling-esque verse, with an eye to future publication, wrote that we are bent on having a good paper to show for our winter down here, and it certainly is a considerable factor in keeping up interests and giving occupation and amusement to everyone on board, so that I cannot think it is a waste of time. Moreover, we are keeping it so strictly polar that I think many interesting things will be preserved in it, which would otherwise be lost. Little incidents and pastimes of a somewhat frivolous and fleeting character, which people will like to read about later on. In fact, the paper brings out the more human side of the members of the expedition and leaves the narrative and the scientific reports to do the rest. On its completion, the South Polar Times was handed first to Scott for approval and was then passed round the officers before descending to the crew. Its contents were sophisticated, including acrostics, caricatures and puzzles, as well as the by now standard fare of shipboard jokes and news. 
The introduction to the first issue concluding with a picture of the discovery, sailing into the sunset, and Shackleton's valediction, now freighted with goodwill and in hopeful anticipation of winning the approval of its little public, the first Antarctic paper goes forth. As with the Aurora Borealis, its contributors were ordinary seamen as much as officers, and as with the North Georgia Gazette, dissenters wanted their voices to be heard. To which end, a separate paper, The Blizzard, was instituted. Shackleton's idea was that issues should be distributed to each man, as opposed to the exclusive one-offs of the South Polar Times. But it was poor, only one issue being produced before it died a death. According to Scott, it fell so lamentably short of the South Polar Times that the contributors realised that their mission in life did not lie in the paths of literary composition. Shackleton edited five monthly issues of the South Polar Times, April to August 1902, before being invalided home with scurvy. His elected replacement was Louis Bernacci, who oversaw three issues in 1903, one in April when the sun went down, another on the austral midwinter day, and the last in August when the sun rose above the horizon, a period, as in the Northwest Passage, of almost 100 days. All three numbers are larger than any of last year's, he wrote, and I trust the standard is as good. On the Discovery's return in 1904, an exhibition of its achievements was held in Bruton Gallery's Bond Street, whose catalogue praised, among other things, the wonders of the new-fangled typewriter. Shortly thereafter appeared the 1905 Prospectus for the South Polar Times. It contained a contents list for three volumes and two specimen pages, and readers were invited to subscribe five guineas for between two and four bound volumes. A limitation of 1,000 was envisaged. In the end, it was condensed, correctly, into two volumes, which were produced by Smith Elder in 1907, with a preface by Scott and limited to just 250 copies. During the editorial process, some of the original covers were discarded and the illustrations repositioned. The last gasp of journalism in the heroic age of polar exploration came in 1911, when Antarctica was infested by teams from around the globe. Expeditions were sent by nations as distant as Australia, Britain, Japan and Norway. Of these, the one led by Scott aboard the Terra Nova was the most notorious, but also the most poignant in terms of newspaper production, instituting, as it did, a third volume of the South Polar Times. This time under the editorship of Apsley Cherry Garrard. As with its predecessors, contributions were to be anonymous and posted in a box, preferably five weeks before publication. But, like Shackleton, Cherry Garrard found himself fielding contributors who came for advice. Bucking the trend, they were mostly officers rather than seamen. By now, typewriters were commonplace and the ship was equipped with a pair of underwoods, boasting two-colour ribbons on which Cherry Garrard rattled away. The first issue appeared on 22nd of June, 1911, prompting Scott to write in his diary that we celebrated the birth of a season, which, for weal or woe, must be numbered among the greatest in our lives. He also noted that the verse was mediocre, except perhaps for a quaint play of words, and its only literary merit lay in an article by the geologist, 
Thomas Griffith Taylor. A polish which leaves you unable to suggest the betterment of a word anywhere. The second issue came out on 10th of September, with an editorial by Cherry Garrard that he described as first-class rot. Edward Wilson was kinder, writing that it certainly creates diversion down here, so it is worth the time spent over it. A third issue was produced on 15th of October 1911. Everyone was unanimous in their praise of the bindings, made from old packing cases, carved and trimmed with Weddell seed skin by Bernard Day. The whole production was supposed to be secret, but it was necessarily a very open one, wrote Griffith Taylor. We could all see Day manipulating sealskin and venesta board in his bunk, though I don't think that anyone expected he would make such a really artistic job of it as he did. On which optimistic note, a polar party of Scott, Wilson and three others, supported initially by supply teams, departed on the 1st of November 1911 for the South Pole. If polar newspapers can be categorised by content, Paris would be remarkable for its very existence, the Victorians for their printing, and Scots for its illustrations. Wilson's output was truly outstanding, ranging from near-photographic depictions of seabirds to luminous compositions of the landscape, faux-Egyptian cartoons of everyday life, and intricate covers for the South Polar Times. In addition, the expedition photographer Herbert Ponting printed oversized images, which he cut down for insertion as plates. By the time Cherry Garrard produced his fourth issue on 22nd of June 1912, however, Ponting was no longer there, having gone home aboard the Terra Nova in February, his role being filled less expertly by Australian geologist Frank Debenham. Vitally, Wilson wasn't there either. As had become obvious, he, Scott and the entire Polar Party must now be dead. No mention of this was made in the paper, for as Debenham wrote, it has been accepted that the tragedy of the autumn must not intrude itself upon us. And so, in their absence, illustrations were supplied by Cherry Garrard and Debenham. Meanwhile, a separate group, the Northern Party, under Lieutenant Victor Campbell, had spent the summer exploring the region around Cape Adair. Among its eight members was the scientist Raymond Priestley, who, between November 1911 and January 1912, entertained the little team with a typed foolscap paper called The Adeli Annual and Cape Adair Sporting Life. We did not pretend to a high literary standard, he wrote, but the articles were mainly topical and so interesting to ourselves, and the paper was the cause of much amusement. Nineteen pages long, it ran to six copies and was never published. The Terra Nova expedition gathered its outlying teams, searched for and buried those members of the Polar Party they could find, Scott, Wilson and Bowers, then in 1913 left Antarctica as speedily as they could. When they came home, their records, including Scott's last diaries, were published in 1914 by Smith Elder and created a worldwide sensation. A limited facsimile of the South Polar Times, consisting of Apsley Garrard's first three issues, came out the same year. But the domestic appeal, which Wilson had envisaged, was overshadowed by the harsh reality of Scott's diaries. Meanwhile, a final journalistic tragedy was unfolding. The Australian explorer, Douglas Mawson, had rejected an invitation to join Scott's team, 
in favour of an expedition to explore other areas of the continent. Landing at a spot where catabatic winds poured violently from the polar plateau, Mawson and his men spent most of their time just trying to stay upright. His first year, 1912, was spent collecting contributions for a newspaper. Edited by medical officer Dr. A.L. Archie McLean, the first issue came out in April 1913 and was called the Adelie Blizzard. By then, however, Mawson had suffered a downfall almost as bad as Scott's. On a three-man sledge journey across the eastern coast of Antarctica, he lost one companion, Belgrave Ninnis, and most of their supplies, to a crevasse. The other, Xavier Mertz, succumbed to vitamin A poisoning, which left only Mawson, similarly poisoned, to make his way home alone. It was an arduous trek, during which the soles of his feet and much of his skin sloughed off. The experience rendered him incapable for the rest of the expedition and marked him for life. The Adelie Times, produced in five typewritten issues, was left in the hands of Maclean. Unusually, their expedition was equipped with a radio, which allowed them to relay real news, including that of Scott's death. On their return, the manuscript was lodged with the State Library of Australia and was not reproduced until 2010, when it appeared in various bindings with an overall limitation of 999. A separate party, under Discovery veteran Frank Wilde, kept themselves amused with the glacier tongue, but no copies survive. The coda to this rich history, which had started with the innocence of Parry and led to the optimism of the Victorian age, for succumbing to the tragedies of the 20th century, was supplied by Reginald Smith, publisher at Elder Smith, of so many polar journeys. Prone to depression, a disease that would in later years afflict his cousin Apsley Cherry Garrard, he was perhaps brought to the brink by Scott's last diaries. From the window of his home in Green Street, London, he flung himself to his death on 26th of December, 1916. That was Fergus Fleming reading his article in our polar issue called Scribes in Ice and Darkness. Fergus is the author of several books dealing with the Earth's colder regions. Barrow's Boys, Dealt with the Northwest Passage, Killing Dragons with the Conquest of the Alps, and 90 Degrees North with the Quest for the North Pole. But don't go away. We have exciting news. If you've enjoyed our podcasts, why not sign up for free access to our entire archive? Just go to info at thebookcollector.co.uk and ask for a login quoting podcast offer. The login is good for five days, so you have ample time to explore our nearly 70 years of publishing. The subscription button is always handy. Enjoy! Enjoy!